When I think back on my childhood, some of my favorite memories are linked to the Christmas season. We may not have had much, but Christmas was really special in so many ways every year. And so as I'm getting older, I find myself reflecting more and more. Anybody else here identify with that? Yeah. I can still picture our little tree in the corner of our 8 by 10 living room. And it's covered in colored lights with the little aluminum reflectors behind it. And I can see my mom working so studiously because there's two blue lights in the same space. And she's trying to spread them out so it's, it's, it works its way around. And once she got the lights conquered, then the next thing was the garland. But there wasn't enough of one size and color to do the whole tree. So she'd start with the thickest. And when that ran out, she'd go to the next color and work her way all the way to the top. And then those little glass bulbs hang hanging on the tree, and then, of course, in great decorating fashion, you just cover the whole thing in tinsel. I remember Christmas Eve often with my mom and I would just go downtown to our little downtown. We didn't, we weren't looking for anything in particular. It was just nice being out on Christmas Eve, and I think once it snowed, but in my memory, it, it always snowed. You know, and, and the snowflakes are falling and you're going in and out of the two or three little stores that were there and people from town were popping in and out and not really looking for anything, just kind of filling some time till about two in the afternoon where, when, when everything just shut down and the doors were closed. Family visits and, of course, food. <laughs> in my culture, food, you know, yeah, it's pretty important. By far, my favorite part of Christmas was the arrival of the Sears Wish Book. Long before Amazon and online shopping, you had the Sears Wish Book, your version of, 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 of shopping somewhere that wasn't available to you around the corner. I remember as a kid, you know, with my hands under my chin, lying on the floor, turning the pages, the endless pages of, of toy possibilities, right? As you're looking through, seeing some things that you wanted more than anything in the world. And maybe once in a while, you would even circle the thing that you wanted uh, in hopes that maybe when your mom is looking through, she'd see that crayon circle around the thing that you wanted and maybe... Miss, maybe you'd get that thing. Wishing, wishing is a big part of Christmas. We, we say it. We, we wish you a Merry Christmas. It's on our Christmas cards. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, we sing it in the song, right? Just before we ask them to bring us figgy pudding. I'm not sure I want figgy pudding, but, but we want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Now, the definition of wish is to have a desire to have a desire for something with no guarantee that it will be received to have a desire for something with no guarantee that it will be received now in our culture and in our time we often use the word wish and hope interchangeably we use it to mean the same thing. And so we say things like, I hope you have a good day. I'm wishing it. There's no guarantee it's going to happen. But I, I wish that for you. 
We say things like, I hope you do well on your exams. We have no control over that. If you don't do your work, I used to say to my kids, they say, Dad, pray for me. I have an exam. And I say, I'm going to pray that God will allow you to score at the level that you deserve based on the work that you've done. I said, never mind. It's good. I'm good. Don't pray for me. I hope you do well on your exam. I'm wishing you, but I don't know. Maybe it's going to be a terrible exam from a terrible professor, and you prepared in this way, and you got questions you didn't even know existed. I hope you enjoy your vacation. Maybe you're going to get diarrhea. Your bags are going to be lost. You're going to end up in the wrong place. Or the five-star online is like a two-star in reality. I hope you have a nice vacation. I'm wishing that for you, but there's no guarantee it's going to happen. You, maybe you're going to be like I've been many times in Disney World, looking at your kids and saying, this is the happiest place on earth. Why are you so miserable? <laughs> you wish it. But there's no guarantee it's going to happen. But when you look at the word hope, not from the way our culture uses it, not from the way we use it mostly every day, but when you look through the scriptures, and this week I took some time to, to look into places in scripture where the word hope was used and kind of did a bit of a deep dive, and, and from that came up to, you know, with an award-winning definition of hope that I'm going to patent. No, it doesn't belong to me. Hope belongs to all of us. Hope is a confident expectation in the promises of God that causes us to persevere because we believe that God is faithful to keep his promises. And so the word of God is not a wish book. The word of God is a hope book. And so we daily live in this middle space that we call the present. You know, those goofy little expressions, you know, life is a gift. That's why we call it the present. We, we, we live in this middle space we call the, the present, somewhere between the past and the future. Christmas reminds us that we're living between the first advent of Jesus, his birth, and we're celebrating his coming as Emmanuel. And the second advent of Jesus, which is his second coming that is yet to take place that we look forward to in anticipation. We are living in that time between, that land between the first coming and the second. Hope looks to the past. It looks to the past. Hope finds its roots in the past. Hope anticipates the future. It looks to the future. But I want to suggest to you today that hope's address, hope lives in the present. That's where hope lives. Hope lies sandwiched somewhere between the promises of God that he made in the past and the anticipation of the realization of these promises that are going to happen in the future. In the middle of that, we find hope. Now, this is the second sermon in our Advent preaching series. And last week, Pastor Mark spoke about light, talked about darkness and light. 
This week, I'm going to be talking to you about promise and hope. Advent reminds us that we can have hope. Advent reminds us that we can have hope because God will do what he's promised to do. Because God has promised, God will do what he's promised to do. Today, I would like to briefly consider God's promise of a savior and the hope that this promise created and continues to create in the lives of those who choose to persevere in anticipation that God will do what he said. We're going to start this morning in the Garden of Eden. There are a few verses in the Bible that summarize what we would consider to be pretty much the full gospel. Like John 3.16 would be one of those, right? That God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. I mean, there's the gospel in, in a few lines, right? And there's a few of those verses that seem to grab everything. And I would like to suggest to you this morning that Genesis 3.15 is another one of these verses that really is just packed with, with, with the gospel. It's early in the creation story. Already, the first two created humans, Adam and Eve, have disobeyed the conditions that were laid out by God. God told them, listen, eat of the tree of life. Have at it. It's yours. But don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't don't touch that tree. The rest of it is yours. But stay away from there. Well, we know that Satan came to them in the form of a snake. He lied to them. He deceived them and led them to disobey God. And in that moment of disobedience, sin entered into God's perfect creation. And all of a sudden, in this one moment, humanity that was perfect is fallen. The earth that was perfect has fallen. And all of creation, all of creation is now impacted by the destruction of sin. The relationship they enjoyed with God in the garden is now broken. It's it's not there. It's not like it was. And so in the midst of this failure, in the midst of the, the brokenness and the darkness and the hopelessness, God appears to them, and rather than destroying them, rather than, you know, just just turning his back on them, God in that moment provides a promise for the future. And we see it in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel or bruise his heel. We sang about that in the carol this morning that is loaded with good theology, by the way. It's a whole preaching series in that song. God addressed the snake. God addressed Satan. And God's message was this, enmity. Now that word means blood feud, hostility. What God is basically saying is this, it's on. It is on. You may appear victorious today, but a day is coming when you will be defeated. There is one who will come, 
and he will crush your head. He will deliver the fatal blow. He will destroy you once and for all. Now, in the process of delivering the fatal blow, you will bruise his heel. You will cause damage in that process. And that damage we know as rejection and beatings and being spat upon and the scourging and the crown of thorns and the humiliation of the death of the cross and the taking of of sin upon him. He will be damaged. But in that process, you will be destroyed. God is looking at Satan and says, your days are numbered. Your days are are numbered. The cross, the resurrection will bring about your defeat. And the second coming of Jesus will result in your ultimate demise. And so right here, right in the thick of darkness, right in the thick of failure, it's so fresh you can still smell it. Right in the midst of their sinfulness, their defeat and their destruction, God comes and what does he do? He speaks hope with a promise. And that hope that God spoke in Genesis 3.15 all of a sudden filled all of history between that moment of failure and that moment of Jesus on the cross and continues to fill history. It hangs there. It, it, It impacts it. It changes history. That hope is there between the cross and the second coming of Jesus. Secondly, the promise to Abraham. Adam and Eve had no idea how God was going to do what he promised to do. They just know that he promised it. They just had hope that he would do what he promised to do. And out of this sinful, broken humanity, God is going to create once more. With Adam and Eve, he created the earth and the universe and all that we know, and now he's going to create A people, a people, a people who will serve as those who are going to reveal him, reveal God to a broken humanity by means of their relationship with him and their obedience to him. And so he appeared to Abraham, who at this time was known as Abram, in Genesis 18. And this is what we find there. Then the Lord said, I shall hide from Abraham what I'm about to do. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. What he has promised him. God asked Abraham to leave his land, to leave his people, to leave his family and go to a physical land that God would give him that he's never seen. That God would bless him and Sarah, and through whom a great nation would come to be. A nation of people that would be blessed by God, and through whom all nations of the earth were going to be blessed. That's quite a promise. All people would be blessed because God's promise of a Savior which was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, would come through this nation that he's about to create. That's how God's going to do it. Now, Abraham's 75 years old. His wife is also elderly. They're unable to have children. 
But Abraham, we're told, left as God asked him to do with hope because he believed what God had promised to him and he believed that it would come to be because God promised it, even though the promise seemed ridiculous. It seemed impossible. He's a 75-year-old man. He has a wife who can't have children. She's also a senior citizen. She's 10 years into her pension. And by the way, you're going to have kids. I'm going to tell you, for me, that would be a blessing, man. I'd be thinking I spent my whole life getting them out of my house. And now you're going to bring someone back in. But he believed it. Because he wanted it, and he longed for it, and he believed God. Now, if we were to pretend that Abraham and Sarah didn't struggle with hope, didn't struggle with persevering, then we wouldn't be reading the story right. Because there are times they take things in their own hands because they forget to trust God, and they don't really think God's doing it the way they want it to be done, so they take over for a while. But ultimately, they stayed true. And when God's time was right, Sarah conceived and had Isaac. And the creation of the nation of Israel had begun just as God had promised. And so we're moving the promise down the road and hope still is fueling all that is happening here. The exile to Babylon. God's promise of blessing on Israel was contingent on their obedience to him. Well, sadly, as we read scripture, we see that despite the promise of God to Israel, the people continually disobeyed God. They worshiped other gods. They ignored the warning of God's prophets of what would happen to them if they didn't change. They just turned aside. Their hearts became cold. And as a result, Jerusalem was captured. It was destroyed. And the people were taken into captivity in Babylon. That's why we have today that most wonderful Christmas carol by Boney M down by the rivers of Babylon. It was devastating for them. They had sinned. They were reaping the results of their sin. They were far from home. They were far from the promises of God. They had blown it and they knew they had blown it. Everything seemed lost. Everything that they, their life was supposed to be is gone and they knew it. And you know what? They knew they deserved it. They deserved it. They were reaping what they sowed. And what does God do? He shows up again. In the midst of their failure, in the midst of their brokenness, their darkness, and their hopelessness, when they're somewhere else. And rather than destroying them and saying, listen, you're going to get what you deserve and you don't deserve anything better than, than what happens to you here. No, God shows up and says, listen, this is really bad and you really messed up and I know you did and I'm not going to justify what you did, but let me tell you something. I have a promise for your future. I have a promise for your future. Why? Because the character of God demands that he keep his promise. When God makes a promise, he's faithful to keep his promise. And so we see in Jeremiah 33, 14 to 16, this is what God said through his prophet. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise that I made to the people of Israel and Judah. And in those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. And he will do what is just and right in the land. 
In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. What God is saying is this. It's bad now. It's bad now. Things are not good. You messed up. Look what you've done. But I made a promise. And the day is going to come. And I'm going to fulfill that promise. And out of this nation that is broken. Out of this nation that is scattered. Out of this mess. Is going to be a little shoot. Going to come to life. From the stump of the tree that's been cut down. The Messiah the Savior. And God says, you will be saved. The opportunity of salvation is still in front of you. What you have done has not taken this away. Nothing will keep God from keeping his promise. And so hope, once again, living in darkness of Babylon, begins to rise as they anticipate a better future. This is bad, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to get better. Why? Because God has made a promise, and God keeps his promises. Fourthly, the birth of Jesus. Matthew and Luke are the only gospels that provide details of the birth of Jesus, and there's a reason for that, because typically in writing at this time, any great person that was written about, their childhood was always ignored and not included in their biographies because the attitude in the culture was, well, what significance could there be from them being a child? A child had no rights in the culture. Certainly nothing good is associated with them being a child. So they started at the moment of their adulthood and all of their successes. But the significance of Jesus' birth as a long-awaited promise makes it necessary that the details of his birth be recorded. Because his birth is as significant as any of the other details. Now, rather than looking into Matthew and Luke's accounts of the birth of Jesus, which we often do, I want to prefer to look at what Paul says about the birth of Jesus in Galatians 4, uh, 4 to 7. And Paul says this, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you also an heir. The promise of God given to Adam and Eve in the garden Given to Abraham to be the father of this great nation, to be the vehicle, if you will, for this promise to be realized, to come. Given through the prophets, reminding the people that despite their rebellion, God would see his promise through, is now realized in the birth of Jesus. Adam failed, but Jesus would succeed. Jesus is born to redeem what was lost, stolen, broken in the garden. Now, when we look at Adam in Scripture, Adam is referred in Scripture 
to in Scripture as the Son of God. But you'll notice in the language, it's not a capital S. It's a small s. He's a small s Son of God. And that relationship was broken when he sinned. Jesus is also referred to as the Son of God, but it's with a capital S. He's the capital S Son of God who redeemed us and restored us back into sonship. And so through Jesus, we now have the full rights of sons once again. We are no longer slaves to sin. As we sing, I am no longer a slave to sin. I am a child of God. It's rooted in this scripture. We're no longer slaves to sin. We are sons and daughters with an inheritance. We will inherit eternity with Jesus. God made a promise and God fulfilled his promise for those whose hope was in that promise. One more stop on our journey this morning. The second coming. The hope of Advent doesn't end with the birth of Jesus. Sadly, sometimes the birth of Jesus is the primary focus of Christmas and we just stop there. Following the resurrection, Jesus ascended to the Father with a promise that he would return in the future for the second Advent. Now, ever since Advent began to be celebrated, you know, we know when we started to celebrate Advent in this church, but Advent began to be celebrated in the church in general in the 6th century. That's when they deliberately said, you know what, we're going to take this season, this point in history, this time in the year, and this is what we're going to do to celebrate the advent of Jesus. Since that very first advent, when it was first decided that it would be celebrated, they celebrated the birth of Jesus and simultaneously the second advent or the second coming, the return of Christ. From the very moment Advent was introduced as a practice in the church, it was linked not only to the birth of Jesus, but to the second coming of Jesus. And so we read in Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 to 14, we're near the end of the book, we're at the back page of the Bible, and Jesus says this, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning, and I am the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. We are living today in that middle space we call hope. Between the promise that Jesus will return for those who look for him and the actual moment when he once again fulfills his promise. I want you to notice that the Bible begins with the reference to the tree of life in Genesis. And it ends in its last chapter with once again a reference to the tree of life in Revelation. Jesus' return. It's almost like God is reminding us, remember way back then, hey, when the whole tree of life thing got messed up and I made a promise, 
Well, at the end, when it's all fulfilled, we're going to be right back to the tree of life. We're going to be right back there. Jesus' return will mark the ultimate demise of Satan. Jesus' return will will mark the fullness of God's kingdom. Jesus brought the kingdom and we experience it in in its limited way, but the day is coming when Jesus returns that the fullness of God's kingdom is going to be ushered in. And we look forward to the day of the salvation and restoration, not only of people, but God has promised to restore all of creation. That's why it's important that Christians take care of the earth because the earth is important enough for Jesus for him to include it in the reasons for why he died. (laughs) I'm going to redeem people and I'm going to redeem my creation and I'm going to put the earth back because it matters to him. But he's not just going to put things back to the way they were before the fall. He's going to do that and then some. Because this time, the tree of life is going to be in the new Jerusalem. And heaven and earth are going to be one. We've got a lot of warped interpretation of our preaching of heaven and earth and that somehow we're going way out there and we're going to live way out there for eternity. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and heaven is coming down. That's what the Bible says. And the two are going to be connected. And the tree of life is going to be there in the midst of it. He's going to put it back and then some. Advent causes us to anticipate the second coming of Jesus with joy and excitement. Persevering the hard times. Holding on. Because we believe one thing. That God is keeps his promises. Now, I don't know about you, but I need a drink. I began today by saying that hope looks to the past. Hope anticipates the future, but hope lives in the present. That hope lies sandwiched right here where we are presently at this moment between the promises that God has made to us in the past and the anticipation of the realization of these promises in the future. When we were a very young family, we only had one child, Liz. And uh, we've often said if Emily was born first, we would only have one child. But that's another story. Liz was our only child, and we lived in a house that had three bedrooms, and they're all on the same side of the house. So front of the house, middle, back. Jen and I had the back bedroom. Liz was in the nursery in the middle. And the front room was a spare room. And then we found out we were having M, and so we started making plans for M's arrival. And so it was time to convince Liz that she needed a big girl room, right? And all the thrills and excitement and more pink than you've ever seen in your whole life. And so we created this room on the front of the house and this is her big girl room and her big girl bed and she was excited and we were excited and now the nursery is free for Emily's arrival and it's all just coming together. I remember one night as I'm lying in bed that 
Liz came down the hall and came to my side of the bed and was just crying and tears were flowing down her face. And of course, it woke me up and, and I'm like, you know, honey, what's wrong? And she said, you know, I had a bad dream. I'm so scared, you know, and she's, she's crying and you're like, you feel so sorry for her. Although you really would like to go back to sleep, but you, you do feel sorry for her. And uh, you try to wake Jennifer, but she's not buying. She, she is awake, but she's not biting. And uh, so I remember picking her up and carrying her down the hallway to her room and putting her in her bed. And we just lay there for a while. And we talked about the bad dream. And we prayed about the bad dream. And we just snuggled for a while. I don't know about you, but wouldn't you love to go back to those days sometimes? Right? Anyway. And after a while, she just, she just fell back to sleep, and, and I started making my way back down the hallway. As I'm walking down this pitch black hallway, all of a sudden, something dawned on me. Why would this child, who is already traumatized from a bad dream, who's all the way at the front of the house, navigate this dark hallway to come and let me know that she had a bad dream. You, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. She was already scared. She was, she was already traumatized. Why, would she, why wouldn't she just maybe yell from there? Maybe she did and I didn't hear her. Why would she walk down? And I realized it was because that she believed that there was someone on the other side of this dark hallway that would console her, that, that somehow would make everything okay. If she could just get there, it was going to be okay. Folks, I want to suggest this morning that hope lives in the dark hallway. That's where hope lives. Hope lives in the dark hallway between a bad dream, be between a nightmare, between our, our deepest, darkest fears, our greatest disappointments, our, our most impacting, disillusioning moments, the deepest sadness. Hope lives in that dark hallway between all of that and a loving father who has promised that he will always be there for us. He will always be there. You won't get to the end and find out he's missing or he left or he's no longer committed to you. That if we can just get there, we're going to be okay. That's where hope lives. We navigate the dark hallway because we believe that the promises of God are true. We navigate the dark highway, the hallway because we believe that our Heavenly Father is reliable. We navigate the dark hallway because we believe that if He makes a promise, He will keep His promise. And so hope can be found in the hallway between the doctor's office where you received your diagnosis and your outcome. Believing that despite what happens, God is going to be true to his promises. Hope is found in the dark hallway between laying your loved one in the ground and anticipating the day of resurrection 
when you're going to be reunited again. Hope can be found in the dark hallway between losing your job at a really inconvenient age and finding a new job, even if it takes, as some of you in this room know, years, years to find a new one. Hope can be found in the dark hallway between seeing your child abandon faith and everything that you taught them and everything that you modeled for them and everything that you poured into them. Hope lives in the dark hallway between that moment where your child abandons their faith and walks away from God and seeing that moment when that prodigal comes home somewhere down the road, even if it takes half a lifetime to get there. Hope lives in that dark hallway. Hope can be found in the dark hallway of a broken relationship when you feel alone and damaged and somewhere between that and the new chapter that God has for you somewhere down the road. Hope can be found in the dark hallway of depression and anxiety when nothing feels right, but you hold on to the one who promised to never let you go and never leave you believing he'll bring you through. Folks, hope lives in the dark hallway. And the truth is, we spend most of our lives in the dark hallway. You talk about where you live in your house. Maybe I spend half my life in the bedroom. The other half in front of the TV. Some of you, half your life's in the laundry room. But the truth is, in the analogy of life, Most of us spend our time suspended in the dark hallway between a broken reality and the promises of God. But I want to remind us this morning, if it weren't for the dark hallway, we wouldn't need hope at all. Who needs hope if there's no dark hallway? If there's no promise to look forward to, Hope is not necessary. It's a waste of time. Hope is only necessary because the dark hallway exists. And it's in the dark hallway where our faith is tested. And we trust the promises of God. And we decide in the dark hallway, am I going to believe him or am I not? In that suspension between a promise and the realization is hope. Is hope. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. Hope is a confident expectation in the promises of God that causes us to persevere because we believe that God is faithful to keep his promises. Hope looks to the past. Hope anticipates the future, but hope lives in the present right here, right now. And Advent reminds us that we can have hope because Advent reminds us that God will do what God has promised to do. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to invite our worship team to come. I'm sorry, our our prayer team to come. Some of you today, I, I know your story. I know your story. I know you're in the dark hallway. 
Some of you, I, I don't know your story, but you're in the dark hallway too. You're suspended between the hurt, the failure, the brokenness, and the anticipation that God is going to do what he promised for you. And what I want us to be this morning for you is this. Like Abraham and Sarah, there are times in the dark hallway where we're not as good at this hope thing as we should be. (laughs) We're frail, we're human, we're broken, we're control freaks. We got to take control of it, we got to try and make something happen, we get tired of waiting, or we just get so discouraged that we give up. And so what we want to be for you this morning are those people who are cheering you on their way down the dark hallway. Because not only has Emmanuel come and God is with you right in the dark hallway, but we're there with you too. We're in the hallway with you. And just God help us if we all have a bad day at the same time. But as long as one of us can keep the rest of us going and focused on the things of God and pray for each other and encourage each other and remind ourselves of what God has promised, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Church is not about this little program where all this plastic people come in and keep their distance and go back out. No, we are a family. It is messy. It is painful. It is dark. But we're in it together. And we have hope. We have hope. Not just because we're there for each other. We have hope because collectively we believe that God is one that when he makes a promise, he keeps a promise. And maybe today you're lying in the dark hallway in fetal position and you can't get up and make one more step. And we're saying, come on, get up. We're going to walk this with you. We'll carry you for a while if we have to. But you're going to get there. You're going to get there. And you're going to be all right. Prayer team, would you come? Tyler, would you lead us?